When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Slate Culture Gab Fest is brought to you by Bermuda Tourism. Whether it's biking the railway trail, cliff jumping into turquoise waters, or diving through the hull of one of 300 shipwrecks, you can experience true Bermuda fun in no time, just a two-hour flight from the East Coast. And by Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. The Culture Fest is currently creating an Audible bucket list of books you need to read. Get one of those books free when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash culturefest. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, I'm Julia Turner, and this is the Slate Culture Gabfest. I Dig Your Directionless Fury Edition. It's Wednesday, May 14th. On today's show, we'll talk about Locke, the ingenious new road movie starring Tom Hardy, and then Adventure Time, the cartoon hit beloved by tween boys, stoners, and philosophers alike. Also, a new history of The Office. Are we disgruntled because of our work or our workplaces? Stephen Metcalf is off for the next few weeks, if you can believe it. He is finally finishing his tome on the 80s. He better so, be. So we wish him well. We send him good book-finishing vibes up in the uh, upper Hudson Valley. And uh, joining me today is, of course, Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens. Hi, Dana. Hi, Julia. And uh, sitting in Steve's chair is David Haglin, Slate's senior editor. Hi, David. Hi, Julia. Thanks for uh, coming on in. Thanks for having me. How's your expertise on the 80s? I lived through them, but I was uh, young enough that I have a very narrow window on the 80s, I think. All right. We'll try and let you off the hook 80s-wise. Let's start by talking about Locke. Locke is a new movie from the writer and director Stephen Knight. It stars Tom Hardy, whose face is delectably described in every single review of this movie. I think we need to talk about the Tom Hardy face prose boom that we're living through right now. And it's it's what uh, Manola Dargis in the New York Times called a man-in-a-can movie, which means it's just Tom Hardy in a car for 90 minutes. Dana, tell us a little bit about what happens in this movie, why he's in the car, what he does there, and how this manages to be an interesting movie. Right. When you hear about this man-in-a-can premise, it sounds like Locke is going to be very claustrophobic and stagey, and I really didn't find it that way at all. I'm interested to hear if you guys did or not, but it really is just Tom Hardy driving a car for 85 minutes, I think, the movie lasts. It takes place in real time, so he announces at the beginning of the movie on one of the many phone calls that he makes from his hands-free car phone that he's going to be somewhere in 90 minutes. He's driving from Birmingham to London, and we'll talk about why he's doing that, and uh, and he's trying to make good time on the way. And as he's doing so, we witness through all these phone calls that are coming into the car, Ivan Locke's life falling apart, both on a personal and a professional level at the same time. So it's the tension in this movie all comes from uh, from the outside. Basically, you see him in the car, and you know you, he has to field all these calls that are coming in, both about the uh, construction site that he works at, where he is, I believe, the chief engineer. At any rate, he's in charge of the concrete pour that will form the foundation for this high-rise building, and uh, and also calls from his family, and as we soon learn early in the movie, calls from his mistress, who is in London, about to have a baby. Actually, to call this woman his mistress is not quite right. 
Right. It was a it was a one night stand essentially. She was someone he knew from work, and he, as he says at one point, basically took pity on her. She was very lonely and felt like there was nothing for her in life. All of which sets up the idea that even when he cheats on his wife, he's a noble, noble man. I and mean, I, I don't know what you guys thought of that, but the character is presented as I think someone once calls him the best man in England at yeah. some point. You know, and and that seems crucial to the way the drama is set up, that you believe in him the whole time and you want to see him kind of pull all of this together, somehow master this impossible situation. Right. Noble but flawed also. I mean, he's definitely a fragile sort of protagonist. And when I heard about this movie, as when I heard about the Robert Redford movie All is Lost, which is man in a can on a boat, I both times thought I would not like the movie because I thought it would be sort of, you and I were discussing this just the other day, sort of an Ernest Hemingway, you know, a macho um, showpiece. And neither of those movies feel that way at all to me. They're actually both really about the vulnerability of a male character who's trying to match wits with nature in one case and with, I don't know, time, I guess, in the other case. Locke is sort of racing against time. Well, time and and his own essence. I mean, you said, David, that you felt that we're supposed to see him as, you know, the best man in England or an inherently noble man. To me, I think what we're watching is his sense of himself as a noble man who does the right thing. His whole sense of who he is, who Ivan Locke is, is a man who does the right thing. You know, he's worked nine years in this construction job and he's never put a foot wrong and he's built up the trust and fealty of everyone around him and that makes him feel good and is central to his conception of who he is. So to be the sort of guy who bails on the, you know, one of the biggest concrete pours in the history of Europe has to tell his wife by phone, you know, that he's had this one night stand all because he's got this idea in his mind that he's the sort of person who is a stand-up guy and thus needs to be at the bedside of this one-night stand as she gives birth, that to me is where the real drama lies. I'm not sure he actually is such a great guy, but I think he thinks he is. And he set himself up in opposition, we learn as the movie goes on, to his father, who was sort of an alcoholic who disappeared, it seems. Before we go any further, you guys, let's uh, listen to a clip from the film. Hello? Eddie, it's your dad. Is uh, is your mother there? Uh, no, she's not back from the shops yet. Um, she's getting that German beer that you like for the match. Okay, uh, listen, I won't be back for that. What? Uh, something's come up. I can't get out of it. I'm wearing the shirt. Uh, Mum's getting sausages. <laughs> oh, yeah, and guess what? She's wearing the shirt as well. Oh, Dad, it, it's so embarrassing. Um, yeah, what did you say about coming home? I won't be back for the match. I'll, uh, I'll have to listen to it on the radio. Dad, you said you'd be back. It's rubbish on the radio. Mum's doing sausages and all. Is your brother there? Yeah, do you want a word? No, uh, just tell... You just tell your mother to call me when she gets back. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, sure. I love you. What? Uh, it's okay. Do you know what? Just, uh, just get her to call me when she gets back. Yeah. Thank you. Sure, all right. Bye. Bye, Dad. Well, one thing you can hear there is the wonderful voice that Tom Hardy developed for this this movie. It's a Welsh voice that he said is in part based on Richard Burton and in part based on some sort of management consultant whose voice he loved. And apparently he studied for a week, although the guy's not actually Welsh. And I don't know enough about Wales to know whether it's, a, it's an authentic accent, but it's a wonderful voice. It's this great combination of soothing, buttery, syrupy richness, you know, but also this kind of steely core within. He seems like somebody who could be very calming and also very frightening to work for, somebody who, you know, has, is a hard drive man. And I have to say, you know, I enjoyed the movie, but I found his voice slightly distracting. I even, as someone who is not that familiar with Tom Hardy's work, 
I, you could tell this was not his actual his actual voice that he was doing a voice, and I didn't quite get why. I didn't know exactly what this specific voice was meant to convey. It makes me wonder what a Welsh accent would convey to a British audience, for instance. I mean, that um, worker on the phone is Irish, if I'm not mistaken. And that seems to convey some kind of he's drinking. And, and you know, they're, they're, it's playing into certain ideas about who this guy is. And I'm not sure what the Welsh voice means. Well, Hardy has said that, you know, among other things, he wanted to make him seem like a self-made man, like someone who would come up from the working classes and from poverty, which, you know, I guess is a Welsh thing because it's a poor region of England. But I'm not sure exactly what else he was trying to get at with that, except that I think he just he just loved that voice and thought it had a, a lot of richness and it was a voice you could listen to for an hour and a half. Can we talk a little bit about his face, too, given that the focus is so face heavily pros. there? Yes. And every single review talks about his particularly red, pouty mouth. I mean, he's getting the full ScarJo treatment, right? Like he Did I talk about his face? Did I go into face Maybe you, rants? you might have avo- avoided face pros. but I'll, I feel like people have talked about Tom Hardy's mouth all the time, though. I feel like from the moment he came onto the, to the Hollywood scene, people have talked about his, his rosy lips. There's also a sense that people don't know exactly what to do with him in Hollywood, right? I mean, this is a fairly small movie. He looks like a movie star. He's a great-looking guy. He he is bulked up for, you know, for instance, the Batman movie. Uh, and he's also a terrific actor. But somehow he's not... I don't feel like he's really... Lo- maybe apart from his mouth, I don't know that he's really lodged in the American consciousness, right? He hasn't had a signature role that I can think of. No, he's sort of on the on the edges and the sides a bit. But I like that about him. I mean, I read that they shot this movie in eight nights. And I'm glad Tom Hardy used eight nights to make this movie. As eight nights of work, it's a great piece of work. It's Im- it's impressive that the movie is as dramatic and as compelling and as enjoyable to watch and interesting as it is, given that it's just this one guy in a car for 90 minutes. But it's very abstract. You know, both the look and the and the score, it's this kind of electronic, synthy score, and the, you know, it's all at night, and what you get, apart from Tom Hardy's face, is sort of headlights and, you know, lights blurring in and out. To me, it, it was shot and scored almost like Miami Vice or something. I mean, it was sort of like a thriller. And yet the drama that's happening within the car is very human. And and to me, there was a disjunct there between the tone and the look. And this, you know, as you're saying, Julia, this kind of fragile humanity that the movie is maybe trying to put on display. And, and, and to my mind, it never fully came to the surface because the surface of the movie was this abstract uh, elegant, clean, precise sort of, you know, mechanistic thing. I do. There are some funny juxtapositions because it, it does seem like you're in kind of a cool road movie with these beautiful, alluring, mysterious, glowing lights. And then like literally a fundamental point of drama, like at the crux of the movie, I think two thirds of the way through. Tom Hardy realizes that the folder he thinks he's left behind for his deputy is actually in the passenger seat. And it's like the folder's in the wrong place. I mean, this is a movie where the folder being in the wrong place actually credibly becomes the source of of real emotional drama and torment for this guy. That was one moment that took me slightly out of it. It I can't believe I'm watching this folder drama movie. But uh, But real life is folder drama. I mean, haven't you had a night? Maybe you haven't had to drive to meet your mistress giving birth in London from Birmingham. But haven't you had a night like this night where everything goes wrong and there's a thousand important things happening at 525 in the morning? This concrete pour is going to begin and he's dealing with his deputy who now has to be in charge of it, who seems like kind of an irresponsible drunk, but but sort of also a sweet character that you feel very sorry for. And I just felt like I've had so many nights that have fallen apart at precisely that rate of speed. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I could identify with him. I mean, it's sort of like your worst day 
writ large times 20. My one question about it is sort of how big or lingering a movie it is. I really enjoyed it while watching it, but then when it ended, I felt done with it. Like, it didn't feel like it quite transcended the conceit of the movie. It didn't quite go beyond it to say anything larger than, hey, we can pull off a cool movie that's based on this conceit with this great actor, um, Even despite the fact that it purports to be about existential issues of what makes you a good man versus a bad man, despite the fact that it's called Locke and name checks, you know, a founding political philosopher of the Western tradition, you know, and I think maybe is trying to say something about labor and the ownership of yourself because he seems to be very concerned with his work. But again, nothing so specific or interesting that I feel like I'm going to be thinking about it for the rest of my days. But that still made me wish there were more movies like this. I mean, the shooting over eight nights is, is even a more complicated story than that because the way Stephen Knight decided to shoot this is really unusual. He shot it all in sequence I think 16 times in a row. So they would go driving. It was really filmed in a car that was being towed, I think, so that Tom Hardy wouldn't have to actually drive and possibly get into an accident. And they went all the way through the script twice a night. So at the end, he had 16 complete versions of this kind of filmed play, and he was able to take the best bits from each and cut them together. And that just seems like such a fun, off-the-cuff, experimental, and inexpensive way of making a movie that it made me wish more directors would take those kind of chances. All right. Well, the film is Locke. It stars Tom Hardy. It's by the director and writer Stephen Knight. Uh, Would you guys recommend that people go see it? I would. I feel like it's the first movie that I got Tom Hardy, that I see the point of Tom Hardy and want to go see him in more things. Yeah. And even though I think it's flawed, it's enjoyable, it's interesting, and it will lead to conversations like this one, I think. All right. Well, now is the moment in our show when we hear from our first sponsor, Dana. You're going to do the honors while I'm hosting in Steve's stead. So what is our first ad this week? We have a new and exciting sponsor this week. Our episode is brought to you by Bermuda Tourism. Whether it's biking the railway trail, cliff jumping into turquoise waters, or diving through the hull of one of 300 shipwrecks, because it's in the Bermuda Triangle, right? Right. Shipwrecks galore. You can experience true Bermuda fun in no time. In just a two-hour flight from the East Coast, you can transport yourself to adventure-filled Bermuda. This is not your parents' vacation spot. You can explore hidden coves in a kayak, try cave swimming under the stalactites, snorkel the legendary coral reefs, or grab a kiteboard and learn to fly. Then, here's the good part, pull up to a pink sand beach and toast the sunset with a dark and stormy cocktail, which has to be rum and something, right? Rum and ginger. This Ooh, is the, nice. the world's best cocktail anywhere you go is preferred local liquor plus ginger and ginger beer. Ah, That's to be always, noted. always what to order. So when you're ready for your next vacation, Bermuda is waiting for you. Thanks, Dana. I can't believe they didn't let us record from Bermuda. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, before we move on to topic two, I have another thing to talk to our listeners about, and that is Slate Plus. Slate Plus is our new membership program at Slate. It offers all sorts of goodies and perks to diehard Slate fans and listeners. And there are a particular set of perks for podcast listeners, especially geared for you guys. If you sign up for a membership, which costs either 5 bucks a month or 50 bucks a year, you'll get ad-free versions of this podcast, special bonus segments of this and other Slate podcasts. And our bonus segment this week is going to be answering a listener question, which is, uh, Dana, what's our listener question this week? We're all supposed to name three pop culture artifacts that changed our lives and made us who we are. Yeah. So we'll be revealing those secrets to Slate Plus members in a bonus segment of this particular episode, and we'll be doing that every week. And finally, there is a database available to Slate Plus members where they can search every single endorsement we've ever made on this show, which is, at this point, we're nearly 300 shows in. We're closing on our 300th show, Dana. Were you aware of that? I think this is like 290 six or something. That's crazy. I'm 10 minutes away from having nothing left to say. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, all of the endorsements we've ever endorsed are now available, searchable to Slate Plus members. We finally uh, put together the resources to create that database. So 
go to slate.com slash culture plus check out the benefits and please sign up and give it a shot let us know what you think you can start out with a two-week free trial so you can check it out and see whether it's for you again that's slate.com slash culture plus all right Onward to our next topic. Adventure Time is a show that airs on the Cartoon Network. Its sixth season just commenced, and it has come in sixth season-wise for public adulation in many fronts, including perhaps most notably The New Yorker, where the great critic Emily Nussbaum recently wrote a loving ode to the philosophical complexity and animated beauty of this show, which stars a boy and his dog in the land of Ooh and the various adventures they go on, the villains they confront, and the life challenges they must face and overcome. So we figured it was time to dip into the wide and copious world of Adventure Time, and we all watched a number of episodes in preparation for the show. I should say they're all 11-minute episodes, which makes it nice and easy to dip into the world. Uh, And I'm curious, do you guys think that this show is basically just a kid's show about a boy and his dog, or does it merit all of the grown-up critical love it's recently been receiving? Well, it's definitely more than just a kid's show. Uh, for one, th- I mean, right away, I don't know what you guys thought, but right away you felt like, you know, there's language that is that is aiming higher than your ordinary Saturday morning cartoon. The animation, you know, gets quite elaborate at times. And even the emotional issues that it's wrestling with are often more adult than you would expect. Uh, for one thing, it's, you know, it's, it's about childhood, but really it's, a, I think, about puberty and adolescence. So that when it starts, the main character, Finn the human, is 12 years old, and he has, you know, sort of burgeoning crushes, and he's wrestling with those feelings. And I, and I thought that the whole show, I mean, I, I mostly watched the first season, and I gather it changes a great deal after that. And he actually ages, which is unusual for a cartoon. But to me, it, it felt like a, a meditation of sorts on that very specific time. In, and particularly a boy's life, I think, but in a child's life, when you're on the cusp of these changes. I mean, there's, a, there's an episode where he goes to um, lumpy space land or something. I'm not sure I got that exactly right, but um, where the people are lumpy and there's a lumpy space princess who's really funny, I think, and she has this valley girl voice and she loves boys and she's going to a dance and he starts to get lumpy. And, you know, this has to be a metaphor for puberty, right? I mean, it, it seemed very clear to me. So I thought the whole show was really kind of engaging with that moment in a person's life. Well, it also incorporates fairy tale in a very powerful way in every episode. Essentially, every little 10-minute episode is is a retelling of some kind of fairy tale or grabbing, snatching bits from different fairy tales. The creator, Pendleton Ward, was a big D&D fan and loved that world of, of role-playing. And while it's not fantasy, it is it is something close to fairy tale a lot of the time, but in a skewed way, right? I mean, the, the princess that you think is going to save you turns out to be an evil monster, and the evil monster turns out to be sort of a pathetic guy who needs help. And the moral valences of the characters are constantly shifting and I liked that about it. Yeah, I mean the the artist whose work reminds me most of is Miyazaki and I love Miyazaki movies and you go and you're in a beautiful abstract trance of mysteriously shaped beings that often float or surf and do unexpected things and create strange alliances but remain a little bit mysterious and remote. And in this show, you have very similar characters and creatures and at least modes of movement, if not exactly a style of animation. The animation's a little bit more peppy and defined and less dreamlike and and ethereal. But then all the characters kind of are like sarcastic wisecrackers who speak in an American slash pseudo-intellectual vernacular that's fun to engage with. And it's basically like Miyazaki, but American and more fun would be how I would put it. 
Well, I would say, I mean, I think that the Miyazaki comparisons, which the creators themselves make as well, are a little bit aspirational. Oh, sure. I, mean, I mean, in the sense that there's this fluid imaginary universe that has creatures that, you know, can sort of mean and do anything and take different shapes. That's sort of Miyazaki-like. But to me, the signature of the Miyazaki world has to do with what you're calling this mystery. You know, this like a lot of use of silence and a lot of sort of things that are never sort of fully explained and, and space that sort of exists between things and people and events. And that's not at all true in these very crammed 10-minute, very adult swimmy feeling you know, joke, joke, joke fest. Well, that's where I think, I mean, there aren't a lot of silences, that's true. But I do think that's where the mythology of the show possibly comes in. And this is where, as someone who's sort of just wading into these waters, I feel somewhat uh, intimidated. But I gather that eventually you learn that this is a post-apocalyptic world, that there was something called the War of the Mushrooms or something like that. And that's why the the world is sort of magical and mutated, because there was this nuclear holocaust of some sort. And you learn that the Ice King, who in the early episodes is basically just, you know, kind of your standard villain. He's funny, but he's evil cackling and, and not a great deal more than that. It turns out he has this backstory where he was this decent person who was changed forever by the war. So there's a lot going on eventually that maybe there is a kind of subtext or a background that uh, kind of filters through some of the later episodes. It's less clear in the, in the early ones. Why don't we listen to a clip of the show so we can get some of its texture? Hey, Finn, you okay? No way, dude. Those old ladies are destroyed because of me. I'm not righteous. I'm wrongchus. Stupidchus. Ah, don't let those gnomes and their illusions get you down. They're just gnomes and illusions. Illusions? Yeah, man. Think, what would regular old sweet ladies be doing wandering the hills of Mount Cragdor? Maybe they're lost? <laughs> no way. This place is designed to mess you up, to mess with your head. None of this is real. It's all just trials to test your heroic attributes. I think you can hear a little bit in that clip the, the playfulness with language, which is something that's really fun about this show. You never quite know how someone is going to phrase something. And so there's little inventions like I'm not righteous, I'm wrongchus. And those things just sort of pop up everywhere. And every throwaway line is sort of sort of clever in that way. Yeah, there's a moment in one episode where some characters tell Finn that uh, they heard his plaintive wail and they dig his directionless fury. And I, I heard that line and just immediately my ears perked up like, what am I watching? I mean, this, that, that sort of language doesn't usually make it into a cartoon like this, which in addition to Miyazaki and Dungeons and Dragons has a very video game feel and also shades of Ren and Stimpy. There are a lot of fart jokes. There are a lot of butt jokes. But one of the things I liked about it is that even though you can sense the sort of melange of cultural influences, it's not full of, of references. It's not full of kind of pop culture sort of Shrek-like jokes. And apparently that's a, a you know deliberate choice on the part of the writers. And I do think it makes the show feel you know less dated, right? I mean, it doesn't feel like it's trying to be clever for you. It, it does feel like it's its own world, even though you can see all of these little things that have informed it. I mean, I have to say that for myself, this relates a little bit to our Orphan Black discussion of, of last week as well. I prefer shows that are standalone. I'm not so into the incredibly complex, deep mythologies where you can't possibly appreciate until you understand the origin of every character and the nature of the entire universe. And even though the Simpsons universe is wildly complicated and has hundreds of characters, there's a sense that each little episode of The Simpsons is kind of like a, a candy that you pop in your mouth and it's gone. And you don't need that one for, to build on for the next. Yeah, no, there is a sense that it's a slightly overwhelming amount of information to conquer if you want to just, like, dive in and go full adventure time. And based on the shows, like, you know, I feel like if my boys grow up and become obsessed with this show and I have to watch the complete canon with them someday, I'm excited to do that, but I'm not going to do it ahead of time. 
Yeah, it's a little daunting, and it does, I think, the show taps into these various fan cultures that encourage obsessiveness. So you mentioned Dungeons & Dragons, also video games. Um, there are a lot of comics who are on this, this show, and I think once you start to notice Maria Bamford's voice or Brian Posehn's voice or Aziz Ansari's, people get very into the various voices and guests who show up and these tiny little characters. And it does, even though I enjoyed just watching several episodes without knowing that much about the show... It does feel like there comes a point where you either obsess about the show and learn everything about it and watch the whole thing, or you you put it aside and move on. All right. Well, the show, again, is Adventure Time. It airs on the Cartoon Network. It's in season six currently, and also it's available for streaming on Netflix. Now is the moment in our show when we hear from our second sponsor. Dana, who do we have today? Our second sponsor is our beloved longtime sponsor, Audible.com, the leading provider of premium digital spoken audio information and entertainment. They offer more than 150,000 titles, which you can play on nearly any device, and they have a special offer for Culture Gab Fest listeners. Get a 30-day free trial and one free book by signing up at our URL, audiblepodcast.com slash culturefest. So you can choose any title from this huge list of titles, but what we've been doing on the show is compiling the Culture Gab Fest bucket list, which is the list of books that you need to read or listen to if you want Steve Metcalf to give you the time of day when he gets back from book leave. Um, and you had a choice for today, David. What, what was your idea? I wanted to recommend The Fire Next Time by James Baldwin, which is available on Audible as read by Jesse Martin, who people may know from Law & Order. He's also uh, about to play Marvin Gaye in a biopic, I believe. And to me, James Baldwin's voice on the page is one of those voices that you, once you encounter it, you never forget it. Uh, It has the cadences of the black church and the King James Bible and earlier American essayists like Ralph Waldo Emerson. Um, The Fire Next Time is two essays, uh, My Dungeon Shook, Letter to My Nephew on the 100th Anniversary of Emancipation, and Down at the Cross, Letter from a Region of My Mind. And they're both uh, reflective on civil rights and uh, religion and his own personal history, and everyone should, should read James Baldwin at some point, and listening to him in particular seems like a great idea because of those cadences. So I oh, yeah. highly recommend it. James Baldwin completely belongs on the bucket list. He, I have him above my desk on a bulletin board. He's among my, my hero writers. And he is someone that once you discover him, there's, you know, there's just that, that voice is always there the minute you crack the book. Wait, who else is up on your desk? Do you have, do you have like his picture or a quote? I have postcards, black and white postcards of some of the writers I love. Uh-huh. Maybe some of them will end up on the bucket list. Elizabeth Bishop is another one. You know, people who can write and look good on postcards. <laughs> <laughs> because James Baldwin, of course, was also a beautiful man, totally stunning face. Yeah, he's yeah. one of the few writers who shows up regularly on T-shirts. <laughs> Thank you, David. That is a that is a beautiful and necessary addition to the bucket list. So remember that your membership at Audible also includes a free subscription to the New York Times or Wall Street Journal Daily Audio Digest, which, as we learned a few weeks ago, is Gail Collins' Daily Listen. So give it a try today, and please use our URL so Audible knows you're a Culture Gab Fest listener, audiblepodcast.com slash culturefest. All right, on to our next topic. We're going to be talking about the office, the cube, the places where we spend all of our days of drudgery. And uh, we are prompted to talk about this by a new book by Nikhil Saval called Cubed, The Secret History of the Workplace. The book came out a couple months ago. It's received reviews and commentary and prompted essays and think pieces about where we work and how it may be changing in the digital age. So we thought we'd talk about cubes as well. And it's actually a very appropriate moment for us to do so because the Slate offices in New York are about to change from cubes. We're ripping out all of our big square cubes and replacing them with smaller bench-style seating. I literally sent out an email last night telling everybody where they were going to sit in the new 
configuration. So it is a moment of cube flux at Slate. So I'll let David go first. <laughs> how, how impressed are you by your cube and how impressed do you anticipate being by your new cube? I'm very curious what the new arrangement would be like. Uh, when I saw the design, what I immediately thought of was a coffee shop, which makes perfect sense because this is where so many people who do the kind of work that, that the three of us do, you know, that's where people spend their time. Is you go to a coffee shop, you plug in your laptop, and you start typing away, and maybe you're sitting across from somebody. And more and more people, I think, have gotten used to working in spaces like that. And at least in my mind, that is what this, this new space looks like. Our cubicles now are not classic cubicles in that they're more bullpen style cubicles. You're not by yourself. You're not hemmed in. I sit with basically everyone else who writes regularly for Browbeat, which is the blog that I run for Slate. And I like that I can turn to Forrest Wickman or I can turn to Aisha Harris and say, hey, what are you working on? Oh, I just looked at that draft. Here's what I thought. And so that not all of our communication is is via email. At the same time, reading these essays brought up you know, deeper feelings <laughs> <laughs> that you cannot work in, a, in, in an office, as that term is understood broadly, and not want an office, right? They're just, if you're in a cubicle, you wish you had a corner office with windows and bookshelves. You, you're brought up to think that that is, that's status. That's, you know, a pat on the back. You deserve an office. And so even though that would interrupt the way that I work every day and one of the things I like about work... I, I'll never get rid of that desire, I don't think. All right, noted. David wants an office. <laughs> Dana, you obviously work at home under an array of postcards. Um, <laughs> and occasionally, for, do you mostly work at home or do you work sometimes from... Uh... When I'm writing, I'm usually at home, yeah. But I will make the odd escape to a, a coffee shop or some library or something like that. Right. So you are a critic. You work, you know, some of your work is going to see movies and then your work is writing about it. Do you ever wish that you came into an office every day and sat next to a David Hagland or an Aisha Harris and kibitzed with them all the time? Or are you happy kibitzing electronically? Well, uh, I had to say the Slate office culture seems pretty fun when I come through for to tape the Gabfest for some, some random errand at Slate. But I don't think I would be able to write in an office. I've never tried to write in an office. I have had a few jobs with cubicles, but they were temp jobs that I knew were going to end in which I was doing something alienated and appropriately cubicle-like. But I think when I'm writing... What's happening is too ugly for other people to see. <laughs> I feel like it needs to happen in the, the, the space of some sort of hidden lair. Right. Well, I think one thing that's perhaps confusing for a slate reading of this piece, right, is that fundamentally we're doing creative work. We're writing, collaborating. It's easy for me to say this as a boss with an office, but it's not quite Dilbert. It's not quite widgets, I think. I think most of the people who work here do not quite feel like they're putting meaninglessness into the world. And so that slightly complicates the knock on the cube. But I think one thing that the various pieces this book has prompted all focus on very interestingly is the history of the cubicle. So it's a little bit more complicated than I think I would have assumed before encountering these, right? Yeah, I really love the way that it seems like Saval goes back in time and does a lot of research about the way office work and office design was conceived in the 19th century when essentially industrial production began to create the need for offices in the first place. So he talks about, you know, Dickensian counting houses and things that Melville writes about the office and Walt Whitman writes about the office and the sort of also the scorning of the office worker in the 19th century, the idea that the office worker, unlike a rough tradesman, was this kind of fey, you know, underdeveloped, non-manly man. You know, it's, just, it's, it's, it's a whole history of the way of thinking about the office that's embedded in our current experience of it without us necessarily knowing it. Right. And then the cubicle comes along initially as this 
idealistic uh, way of liberating the office worker. So this guy, is it uh, Robert Probst? He, he designed something called the Action Office, and he thought that this would, you know, make work more pleasant. Uh, but he designed it once, and then I guess that didn't take off. And then he designed a second version called Action Office 2, and that eventually became the cubicle, which really was just a way of getting more people into smaller spaces. Right. If you look at the designs for the original Action Office, if you Google image search that, it's they're really great. They're these great chunky primary colors and these kind of Herman Miller furniture and odd angles. Nothing is squared off. Things are sort of a little bit open, like the bullpen place that you work that you described. But as soon as the Action Office 2 kicks in and there are cubicles put up, it seems like it just became an, an excuse to divide office space as efficiently as possible and cram people into boxes. Right. And I think then the latest trend that we're seeing, which Seth Stevenson recently wrote about for Slate, is something called the open office, right? Which is basically the floor plan that we're moving to at Slate, which is a lot of people working at open tables without walls between them particularly, and which also often takes the step of pulling management out of the offices too and having everybody work at the same kind of cube style situation, which you'll you'll be interested to know is is something that some of Slate management advocates for our next office situation. So we may be going office free at some point. But I think the one tension here that that some of these reviews get at and that Seth spoke about in his piece is that there's always kind of the utopian social engineering way of talking about office design. We want people to sit in this way to create this sort of work environment, to create this sort of work experience, to create this sort of work product. And then there's the fundamental practical, uh, we pay this much per square foot for a lease that runs for this term, and we've got to fit X amount of people into it. I mean, you know, this office design that we're undergoing at Slate is not aesthetic. It is, we have more people here. We've had some growth. We've got to fit everybody in, hence new offices. So, you know, we've tried to design it in a way that will make everybody's lives as good as possible, given the constraints. But, you know, we didn't go to like a consultant to talk about everybody's mood. You know, I mean, I think that a lot of times the way that people talk about office design imposes social and psychological rationales on top of what fundamentally end up being like happiness maximizing basic management decisions, you know? Right. And for all the criticism of the cubicle, you see that there's both efficiency and practicality and also some attention to happiness management in the creation of the cubicle in the sense that it does give you walls. I mean, I think when I say that what happens at home is too ugly to be transported into an office, it also has to do with privacy and, you know, maybe a sense that you just sometimes have to wall everything out. I guess headphones are maybe a way that the modern office worker does that. But, you know, it seems great to have a chat with your coworker as they come by your desk and maybe that adds to the mobility of the workplace and makes you come up with new projects. But there's also moments where you just need to shut everybody out and get your your stuff done. The other thing that came up in reviews of this book is, is the extent to which one can overstate the importance of the space in a worker's experience. Um, I guess that near the end of the book, Saval uh, makes the case for this shift toward officeless work that now with our laptops and with the internet, we can work from wherever. And that sounds ideal in, in some ways, but really what it reflects is the greater instability and uncertainty of the American workplace. And that we, you know, many people don't have jobs, don't have benefits. You know, maybe they're, you know, an independent contractor whose, you know, next paycheck could come from anywhere or maybe from nowhere. And that can feel just as, as stressful uh, and difficult as being in a little cubicle somewhere where at least you do have that security potentially. Right. I mean, I think he, it sounds like he presents the end of the office as a liberation for the worker and the notion of us all popping around on laptops, sometimes working on cool beanbag chairs in Silicon Valley and sometimes working from hip coffee shops in Brooklyn and 
as a future that will liberate us. But I think actually that shift in work towards its omnipresence is the thing that is the most negative and frightening about work culture currently. I mean, I say this as someone who loves my job and, you know, I go home and put the kids to bed and then I go back online and send more emails and mostly stuff I'm really interested in thinking about and doing. But it is all the time and everywhere. And the notion that when I'm in my cube or my office with whatever little accoutrements I've set up to make a little work life there and then when I'm home, I'm home. I mean, that doesn't exist anymore for knowledge workers like us, and I think for a lot of people these days, that is the part that seems most difficult for people trying to create balanced lives going forward. Yeah, I have really mixed feelings about that. It it is maybe the most interesting question that the book raises, this idea that perhaps the divide between work and life is something that arose, you know, a couple hundred years ago and is now dissolving, right? If you go farther back, there was a time when people didn't divide, oh, this is now my workday and this is now, now I'm at home. Uh, and that, that seems to maybe be happening again. And that's frightening on some level because we do want to be able to put it away and not think about it. And yet at the same time, I, I wonder if, if, if maybe, you know, blurring that distinction, there could be some hope there as well because you are what you do and maybe that's not a bad thing. I know one image that I kept having, I don't know if Nikhil Saval writes about this in, in Cubed, but I, I kept thinking of the recurring cinematic image of work in an office, the mid-century office as pictured on film, uh, thinking of, of the apartment, Billy Wilder's The Apartment, first and foremost, but also King Vidor's The Crowd, you know, those those movies that, that sort of have a, a camera slowly pulling away from this huge field of stiff lines of, of regimented desks, you know, and it seems like that is definitely an office model, even in the open plan office of today, that we've moved away from. It's not just faceless lines of, of workers anymore. It's true, it's true. Actually, one of the companies that's mentioned in the book is Steelcase, one of the, the early desks, like, you know, just the steel slab on top of two filing cabinets uh, was designed by the company that became Steelcase. And it is Steelcase furniture that we have purchased that's getting installed on Saturday. You know, I mean, they're still in the business. But it is interesting. I was was thinking of the apartment, too. Those rows of desks are almost set up classroom style, right, where everybody's facing the same direction towards the locus of power within that office. But so then what's the new version of that that cliche? What's the new representational cliche in, in TV and cinema of the office? I mean, it's funny. I hadn't really thought about uh, it in terms of production design, right? Like typically you think of Mad Men with its lavish, elaborately constructed sets and, and kind of the beautiful period offices that everybody sort of covets, the avocado phones or whatever. But if you think about it, the NBC show The Office is the office that Americans have had in their living rooms most. And that is very much a modern office. There's a couple managers and offices. There's a conference room with Venetian blinds. And then there's just open desks with people facing each other. It's probably convenient for shooting a sitcom that there are no walls because you can get uh, various minor characters mugging in the backgrounds of particular shots. Yeah, and we've started to see jokes on a you know, show like Silicon Valley. Um, Veep had an episode like this recently where it's a tech company and the joke is how open the office is and that there's ping pong. And all. I mean, this is a 15 or 20-year-old joke by now, but, yeah. but even to this day, it's still seen as anomalous, right? right. That's, that's never actually taken over to the degree that everyone sees that and says, oh, yeah, that's what it's like where I work. Right. You know, the pop culture office that I love is the office of Slugline, the, uh, <laughs> the website, the hard-driving DC website on House of Cards. You guys remember that office that's all about beanbags and giant hands painted on the wall? Yeah, and it did not look like a fun place to work. I mean, you know, if we talk about is there some ideal office that we can create where everyone's happy and it just is, you know, sort of wonderful and liberating, I don't want to sit on a beanbag on the floor. Under hands? That's very menacing. <laughs> no, that doesn't sound good. Well, the book, again, is Cubed by Nikhil Saval. Uh, read it on your way to the office. All right, guys, it's time to endorse. Dana, what have you got for us today? 
My endorsement today is inspired by the Adventure Time topic this week. Uh, I want to endorse a much less hip and more square cartoon, but one that I've been coming to enjoy lately through my daughter's enjoyment of it. It's called Phineas and Ferb. Did you guys ever watch Phineas and Ferb? It's, I believe, a Disney Channel cartoon, but it's also available on Netflix right now. It's been going on for some time, six years or so, and has gathered various Emmys along the way. It's just about two animated brothers and their adventures over the course of one summer, a summer that has now lasted for six or seven <laughs> years. And it's just basically about the things that Phineas and Ferb get up to, which sometimes have a vaguely Adventure Time-like sort of degree of impossibility. You know, they can invent time machines and travel to other planets, and they do all kinds of insane things during the course of the day in the summer. And their teenage sister, Candace, is always trying to bust them at these forbidden activities and failing. Um, the main thing that makes Phineas and Ferb worth watching is the music. The way I started to fall for it is that my daughter would have it on, and I'd think, what's that annoying cartoon in the background? And then I'd start realizing, wow, these parody songs are great. They're almost to the level of the South Park or Simpsons parody songs, where they'll be, you know, Bollywood numbers and kind of, you know, full-on Broadway musicals and then torch ballads and whoever does the music for that show, which I believe is just the, the two creators of the show kind of whip out a song every week. The music alone makes it worthwhile. So Phineas and Ferb on Netflix or the Disney Channel. God damn it. You're adding to my list of kids shows that grown-ups should watch. This is this is becoming too long a list, Anna. But no deep mythology in Phineas and Ferb. You can just pop in, listen to a Bollywood musical sequence, and, and you're out. In fact, I was going to recommend specifically if you want to start exploring... Google the uh, the Cliptastic Countdown, which is the countdown of the 10 favorite songs ever on Phineas and Ferb, voted on by viewers. All right, the Cliptastic Countdown. David, what are you endorsing this week? I'm going to endorse a voice. Has either of you ever listened to Ted Hawkins? Mm-mm. I only just recently discovered him, which is partly why I'm endorsing his voice, because I don't know his work uh, all that well. I don't know his, his songs. But partly it's because his, his voice is the thing. I mean, as soon as you hear it, you want to hear it some more. It's both gravelly and bright at the same time, which seems like an impossible combination. Um, Hawkins died in 1995 after this sort of star-crossed recording career. He um, is from Mississippi, I think, and was was poor and at one point became an addict and would, you know, was, I think he recorded, uh, his first recordings are go back to the early 70s, I think, but he would basically have little glimmerings of success and then disappear for a while and then be rediscovered. And the song in particular that I would recommend is one of his own. It's called The Good and the Bad. So if you want a specific song, look that one up. And uh, I'm sure after you hear it, you'll want to hear several more. That sounds great. I'm definitely going to check that out. All right. My endorsement this week is also from the pile of kid things that are interesting to adults. So we've got a lot of things on that pile this week. My apologies. I want to endorse the work of the children's book author Mo Willems. He has written a series of books featuring two characters, Elephant and Piggy. Elephant is a, he's a bit of a melodramatic sort. He tends to find drama and woe and turmoil in everyday occurrences. And Piggy is his slightly smarter, saner friend who helps him through these travails and calms him down. The book that I've been loving recently is one called We Are in a Book, which is one of those classic books like There's a Monster at the End of This Book. It's a book about bookitude, about being in a book, about the experience of reading, which is really fun for our kids to encounter as they start to figure out why they like books so much and what it means to it, it plays with their sense of what it is they're doing when we're reading it to them. Um, but I am not Mo Willems's only fan. There's a great story that ran, I think it was originally in the Times Book Review, but J.J. Abrams, the TV and movie creator, is also a huge, huge fan of Mo Willems, and, and he related this story amusingly. He wrote, One of my favorite children's authors was introduced to us by our youngest son. 
When he was in a kindergarten, he bro- brought home some books by Mo Willems, who has one of the most remarkable comedic voices I've ever read. His sense of humanity, of heart and generosity is staggering. I was so blown away, I got his number from his agent and called him. I was essentially a sycophant, expressing what a deep fan of his I was, how I would love to work together one day. He was quiet on the phone almost monosyllabic, disinterested. Frankly, it was a bit of an odd reaction. It wasn't until the next day that I discovered I had an error called Mo Williams of the Portland Trailblazers. So he somehow accidentally had this conversation with an NBA player about the work of this uh, children's book author. Um, But you should take J.J. Abrams's fandom and mine uh, in tandem and check out his works. Or if you have the occasion to give books to small children, you should give some of these books. I recommend We Are in a Book by Mo Williams. And that's our show. Thanks so much, Dana. Thanks, Julia. Thanks, David, for pinch hitting. Thanks. Before I go out with the closing credits, though, I do want to remind listeners that we are hiring an intern. The wonderful Anna Sheckman is leaving us for the pursuit of higher education and fine knowledge. And so we want you or someone like you to come and help us put the show together. Uh, You get to be an integral part of what we do. You propose topics. You help do research for each one. You come and sit in on the taping every Tuesday, help us fact check and make sure we don't make boneheaded errors uh, and put together the show notes that go up on Slate. It's a paid internship. It's about 10 hours a week of work. And if you're interested, please send a note about why you would be a great intern to culturefest at slate.com. You'll find links to some of the things that we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our intern is Anna Sheckman. And the executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. Our Twitter feed is Slate Cult Fest. For Dana Stevens and David Hagland, thanks so much for joining us. I'm Julia Turner. We'll see you next week. Living is good. When you have someone to live with Laughter is bad When there's no one there to share it with Talking is bad If you've got no one to talk to Dying is good When the one you love grow tired of you